I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. Uh, lots of special things for you this week. Uh, one of which is that Jerry's not here. Hey. <laughs> Our quartet is a trio tonight. I'm Steve Norman and I'm joined by James Diamond. Good evening. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Uh, Jerry has told us that his Sky Broadband is down and as such he'll not be doing any post-match interviews with Sky until they fix it. <laughs> Damn straight. So in two weeks now, that's the post office and Sky that we yeah, have but, basically yeah. warned people against ever getting their broadband with. Yeah, yeah. Mine's, mine has been fixed now. Yeah. I have to say, their engineer came out quickly and they did resolve the issue quite... Well, I say they resolved it quite quickly from that final phone call. But um, yeah. yes, so that's why I'm here today and not all crackly or, uh, you know, cutting out in the middle of speaking or anything like that. I'd also warn people about EE. I mean, it's fine. When it's, it's great when it works, but when it goes down, it's rubbish. <laughs> they, 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 their customer support is terrible. Uh, that is consumer advice done for today. <laughs> I, I just, uh, I'm very happy with my Virgin Broadband, uh, and if they want to kind of use me as a spokesperson, <laughs> just get yeah. in touch. Uh, if anyone from any company is listening to this, give us some free shit. Yeah, as ever. Anyway. Anyway, consumer advice done. Uh, no quiz this week because it's unfair to start the new quiz format without Jerry where there's actually things to play for. To be fair, it's unfair to play with Jerry the way he's been recently as well, but mm. I think that's, <laughs> that is the right decision. True, true that. Uh, <laughs> so we will move straight on to the news. Yeah, just a, a, a quick bit of news, but uh, quite a significant bit of news. Um, it's been announced just today that the Oscar-winning director and no, Jerry would be is usually my pronunciation go-to guy. But I'm going to say <laughs> Hayao Miyazaki. Would that be right, Owen? I would guess so. Yeah, basically the uh, the head, uh, the lead animator of Studio Ghibli. Um, his what is essentially now his last film, The Wind Rises, is in competition at the film, uh, Venice Film Festival. And he has announced his decision to retire. He is going to have a news conference later on this week, but he just wants to say goodbye to us all, apparently. Um, what I will say is it will be a sad loss to uh, filmmaking. In a, in a few weeks' time, we'll be talking a bit more in-depth about Studio Ghibli, the, the long-awaited <laughs> Studio Ghibli feature. Um, he won an Oscar in 2003 for Spirited Away. Uh, which is probably, of the modern films, his, his most famous one and uh, will be kind of a lasting legacy. But just so many great films and clearly such an influence on so many other great animators as well. And it's it's sad to see him leave the business, but at least he's leaving 
of his own volition. It's um, his son is has already been doing films for Studio Ghibli, and quite recently I watched from up on Poppy Hill, the most recent Studio Ghibli film, which, again, I'm going to be talking about when we finally get around to talking about Ghibli. Um, but that was his son taking on the reins and producing a beautifully crafted film. So hopefully it's not signalling the end of that studio, uh, just new beginnings. Yeah, I think he's... I mean, he when people think of Studio Ghibli films, it's his films they're thinking of, really. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Studio Ghibli films. I quite like the animation in them. I think what he's done for animation as well is it could never be understated um, because he's he's just been so influential on every other animation studio around. Uh, and not just animation studios, even on filmmakers themselves were sort of exploring that sort, sort of fantasy side of things. So um, he's going out on a high anyway, I think. He's top of his game and, yeah, it's um, probably the right time to do it. Let this sort of new blood come through and and see what comes out of Japan following his exit. See if other, it encourages other directors to um, to try and better him. Mm. I'm hearing really good things about The Wind Rises as well, which is um, apparently quite a personal film, but it's about the the guy who invented the Japanese World War Two fighter planes, which were seen <laughs> as um, just incredible um, pieces of equipment. Um, so it's already got a lot of controversy, uh, both in Japan and abroad as well. But it's definitely a film I'm looking forward to seeing. Yeah, it sounds interesting. I'll um, probably give it a try if it's uh, if it's near out near me. Okay, um, I think that's it for our brief news segment this week. Yeah, that, yeah. that's yeah. it. Yeah. Do you know what? We, we've got quite a packed episode, so let, let's crack on with everything else. Yes, uh, up next we have got uh, What We've Been Watching. What we've been watching this week. Uh, James, why don't you kick us off for this segment? Okay, well, later on in this episode, uh, we're going to have a report from me at the UK premiere of a British-Asian film called Jardu, uh, which features a couple of actors who have been in some Bollywood films. And... I, I just felt, you know, being the, uh, a journalist of great integrity, uh, I needed to go <laughs> into these interviews prepared with a little bit of background. And to my great shame, I say to my, not necessarily to my great shame, you because know, I'm not ashamed of many things in my life uh, and the things I am aren't fit for a podcast. But um, one of them is... I've, I've never seen a Bollywood film. And I was chatting to Owen about this earlier this week and Owen said he's got zero interest in watching it. But because of our preconceptions, I think, of Bollywood films, my preconceptions were um, they are incredibly long with bad acting and far too many dance sequences. Mm, but from everything I know, there always seems to be a song and dance sequence, even if it's like a, a gritty thriller or like a war film. At some point, someone that everyone starts dancing. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's and that's been one of the things that's made me go. Oh, I'm not sure I want to watch one of those. And the other one is, and this isn't just a preconception; it's very true. They are all two and a half hours long, at least. It's, it's crazy. You look for just a cheap, uh, quick and breezy comedy. Yes, yeah, two and a half hours, I'm afraid. And I think there's something about um, 
their consumer base in India wanting to get value for money or something. I'm not entirely sure why they are all so long, but it's like uh, Judd Apatow. That, I think that's where Judd Apatow's ridiculous length of his films has come from or something like that. But I, I watched one this week, and it's available on Netflix UK, and I think it's available on pretty much all the uh, regions for all our worldwide listeners out there. And it's called Barthi. It was India's... Um, entry into the Oscars for Best Foreign Language Picture last year. It's from 2012. Uh, it is 151 minutes long. Warning for you there. Um, basically, it's the story of a young man who can't speak and can't, is deaf. And he grows up in Darjeeling as a bit of a kind of village mascot because despite his disabilities, he has a really mischievous sense of fun, um, great practical jokes. Um, yeah, actually, to be fair, there's a huge Buster Keaton element to him. Um, now, he's played uh, by an actor called Ranbir Kapoor, who is, in, in this way, he's absolutely brilliant. He is so charming, really charming. And he has the silent cinema pratfalls and... Elements of physical comedy so well done. I was really, really very impressed. It doesn't feel empty. It feels like a homage um, to people like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. It's just so well realised. And it's done with such heart and such love that you just can't help falling in love with it. Now, my preconceptions, as I've already given you those about Bollywood, this completely confounded them. At no point was there a huge unexpected dancing there was a couple of dancings but they were actually kind of woven into the story it was at a social gathering um so it was you know people dance at social gatherings so it wasn't a big or no it was part of the story basically um and i was actually and this probably sounds really patron i was just really amazed by how clever it was by how wonderfully shot it was and also how wonderfully acted it was as well a load of wonderful performances just very quickly it's about um it's about barfi this young man um and he falls in love with a beautiful woman who is completely kind of out of his league her family will refuse to allow her to marry someone like that they have already got her arranged to be married to someone else but she slowly starts falling in love with this charming buffoon um in a way he actually uh, Amelie is one of these films' influences. It really reminds me of Amelie, that sense of mischievousness, that sense of fun, that sense of an outsider who's just looking for someone else to kind of complete them. Um, down to the fact that the colours seem really similar. A lot of the direction seemed, it just reminded me of Amelie. And its soundtrack is even very accordion heavy as well. It, it, if, if there's one thing you could throw at this film, you could. You could try and accuse it of being a bit of a rip-off of Amelie. And I, I think, no, it's, it's, it's just an extension of an influence of Amelie rather than a rip-off. The other film it reminds me of a little bit is Life is Beautiful in that the main character, remind, you know, again, is a little bit like Roberto Benigni's character in Life is Beautiful, except he's doing a more difficult job here because he can't even talk. Um, so it's, it's all down to his mannerisms and his physical acting, which is fantastic. But, yeah, theirs is a love that maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen, but there is a third person in this love triangle who is the daughter of another very rich and powerful family, but she is suffering from quite high levels of autism. So she is also another character here who 
Um, is an outsider has difficulty communicating with people, difficulty making relationships and forming relationships with people. And this film has received a lot of positive press for its portrayal of people with disabilities. And and, and in that sense, it, it, you're never sat there going, oh, poor them. You're just thinking these are wonderful characters. Um, the film itself switches between present day, 1972 and 1978, which is where the, the bulk of the film uh, plays out. It has flashbacks, now flashbacks within flashbacks, and its structure <laughs> is... It, it, it's complicated. You have to be paying attention to this film to know what's happening. And again, that's really good. It treats its audience as adults and says, look, you, we're not going to spoon-feed this to you. There's a few key points there which you've got to be aware of and pick up on. And if you do, it's such a wonderfully rewarding film. I, I, I fell in love with this film totally. It's... Um, Lovely soundtrack, uh, brilliant, brilliant performances by everyone involved, um, including the fact that the same people are playing these characters over a 30-year time period as well. So they're having to play more youthful versions of themselves, older versions of themselves, with some pretty good makeup as well and things like that. Had me pretty close to tears at times as well. And I know that doesn't take too much for a film to do. Uh, but I've not had that for a few months. I've not had a film kind of push me to the edge of tears for a little while. Um, so I just. It is the film that made me realise that Bollywood isn't what necessarily what I think it is. Now, if I go and watch a bo- another Bollywood film, maybe this is the outlier. Maybe they are all exactly how I imagine them to be. But if you are ever going to dip your toes in the world of Bollywood, I cannot imagine a better starting place than this. And it almost feels criminal to keep referring to it as a Bollywood film because I wouldn't keep if it were if it had come out of Russia I wouldn't keep referring to it as a Russian film I wouldn't just uh, yeah the fact is it is a wonderful international film that um really really, it it would have been in my top 10 of last year if I'd seen it last year genuinely really enjoyed this film um it it takes some effort like I say it's two and a half hours long it's not an easy watch in terms of its narrative structure, but there's such a playful um, feeling and tone around it that you, you, I just couldn't help going along with it. Really enjoyed it, so highly recommended from me. Okay, um, <clears throat> Owen, what have you watched? Um, I'll just talk about what I've watched in a minute, but I think there's an interesting point which James has sort of made about um, sort of been defined as a Bollywood film and then your preconceptions of it. I mean, I, I went to um, a Comic-Con, first ever Comic-Con that I've been to at the weekend, a small little one in Melcham, and um, on one of the panels they were talking about um, uh, genres and, and being defined by, you know, whether you, it's like a manga or whether it's like a Western comic, and there's, there's bits in the middle which don't really fit into people's sort of general perceptions. Paul Duffield, who's an artist, made a really good point about um, how things like Between the Cracks, people, the artists, the creators, they don't really want to be defined as, you know, <laughs> as whatever. So in this case, I suppose the artist, the, the director wouldn't want the film to be defined as a Bollywood film. He'd want it to be, to be defined as whatever type of film he thinks it is. Or, you know, and but to, to an audience, it's very hard then to get that to translate across to an audience who will have preconceptions. So I think it's, I mean, we, we talked about it before on the World Cinema podcast as well, didn't we, where world cinema isn't necessarily a genre, but we tend to group it as that because that's easier for us to sort of access it. Um, 
Whereas yeah. it can also be like a barrier. Exactly. So, you go into HMV and you see, yeah, they've got the general feature films bit. And then they've got westerns. Uh, my, my mom certainly has a section of westerns, a yeah. section of horror films, and then well, a exactly, section yeah. of world cinema. And then it's like, well, but you've got westerns, horror films, you've got document, you've got everything in yeah. there. And and that was when I was watching this, and I was thinking, what actually is Bollywood? We talk about mm, Bollywood. Mm. Is it is it the industry? Is it Bollywood? Is it like Hollywood? And we talk about Hollywood films, which come under loads of different genres, but we kind of group them together on a kind of economic scale. Uh, the fact right. that they are a certain language and they come up with a certain economy of scale, and we expect them to be mainstream and appeal to a large audience. Now, is Bollywood about the industry, or is it actually a style of film? And, and I'm starting to think now we've maybe confused an industry with the style of film. Yes, uh, and I'm starting I, I, to think there's possibly some absolutely fantastic Bollywood films that I have dismissed as being... Imagine if everyone thought that British films were all like Notting Hill, for example. Yeah, that, that, yeah mm, and everyone mm. thought... every And everyone thought, well, British films, they're like those Richard Curtis films. And imagine if that was the case. And maybe I I'd thought they that. were. I thought, I thought <laughs> all British it's films... It's either that or gangster films, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's either, like, little rom-coms, like Notting Hill or Love Actually, or it's gangster films. Exactly. And, that's, and that's all British cinema is, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> and and maybe, there, maybe that's the case with Bollywood. There are maybe... At least half the films are terrible, romantic, hugely long dance, three-hour-long tripe fests. Okay, that are just like made that way to get the punters in. But that means there's a load of other films out there that I have potentially dismissed because of the way other films have come out of that region. And I wouldn't really do that with any other country in the world. Mm. Uh, it's interesting. So. I want to, so Anyone who's listening to this who has seen maybe some more Bollywood films, I'm genuinely interested in breaking through these barriers and finding some more hidden gems from from a country which has over a billion people there. There's got to be some good well, stuff. Um, Carl Pilkington and Warwick Davis were in a Bollywood film. Yes, they were, weren't they? So, I mean, that's probably worth <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I, I will need to look at that. I, I've heard so many stories of... Um, English actors who've gone over there and have made their career playing villains in Bollywood. It sounds fun. It sounds like a. Well, they make life. a hell of a lot of money out of out of these films, don't they? Yeah. And it's weird because they don't really translate well to other countries. The sort of traditional type of Bollywood films that we no, assume that they all are. They... A billion people's a big market. Yeah. Oh, interesting. The box office on Barfi, which basically was like a. It was like an Indian avatar, you know. It it mm. broke huge box office records there. It swept board, it swept awards boards. It was made for about four million dollars um, because obviously everything's cheaper over there because it doesn't look like a film that only costs four million dollars to make. It looks fantastic, um, but it made twenty eight million dollars. That that's all yeah. it made. Like, and we think, oh my god, it only made twenty eight. But that's like box office record because it's so cheap to go to the cinema in mm. uh, in India. Um, so but I if, find you know, if a, if a British-made film mm. made twenty-eight million in Britain, we would say that would be doing quite well. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose it, you know, it's fairly relative. In, oh, you yeah, know. yeah. But you know, the, the fact is, that, yeah, it, you think it, the fact is, it was only made for four million. That's the key mm. thing there. Mm. And so they've they've increased that by a, you know a level of yeah seven margin. Yeah. Mm. So that was quick math. Sir, bloody hell. Um, <laughs> So yeah, but again, just to say, you know, don't be caught 
caught up on Bollywood. You know, try this, and then someone tell me where else I can go next. Okay, so Owen, so, yeah, what so, did you watch? Well, I watched, uh, I watched loads of classics, actually. Some really good classics. I'm not going to talk about them all or even mention all of them that I've watched. But I rewatched The Searchers, and I don't know where I've been going wrong the last few times I've watched it, because it's the first time it sort of clicked with me and I got it, and I know I think it's just an utterly amazing film. Um, it's on re- Saturday afternoon as well. It's in my pick of the week for the website is it? this week. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, everyone should should watch it. I bought it on Blu-ray and um, stunning film. Really, I don't know don't know what I didn't get about it the first two times, but uh, yeah, fantastic. Um, but yeah, I've watched quite a few of them. I watched uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and Platoon and The Deer Hunter, and they've all been very good. You've been doing some IMDb top two fifty there. Um, they were literally just. I had. Um, the Deer Hunter was on TV, recorded oh, okay, it. Yeah. I've had Platoon on DVD for about two years. So not watched are, it. I've still not watched it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was from Love Film. Oh, so, okay. I've, yeah, sort of played through a few of them. I've watched quite a lot of other others as well. But like I say, I'll be here all day if I start listing all the films I've watched. Um, but I did watch, and it isn't by any means a classic, I watched Conan the Barbarian, the original film from uh, 1982 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, directed by John Milius, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, it's one of those films that I've kind of... I think most people are the same in that they think they've probably seen it, but not really sure. I'm one of those where I've seen bits of it, but never I've never seen the whole thing in one sitting before. Um, so that was an experience, because it's pretty rubbish, actually. <laughs> I was a bit surprised. You know, you expect an old 80s Arnie film where he's known for the one-liners in it. Um, it's really, really disappointing. I get. The, I mean, they, they definitely took it too seriously. That's not something I've picked up on before. I've never really noticed in the, like, the half an hour or the 45 minutes or the hour that I've watched of it previously that they, they just really <laughs> think they're making a properly serious film. There's never any hint of it being... Um, self-aware of, of how corny it is and how uh, extremely misogynistic that it is. Um, you know, I, you kind of do expect it from a film that's got, you know, the, one of the quotes is about him, um, the, the, you know, hearing the lamentations of the uh, the women folk. Um, you know, to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you and to hear, hear the lamentations of their women. That's like the uh, his motto in that film. And so you, you you are expecting a certain level of misogyny in it, but literally every woman, even the hero woman in it, is still pretty... I mean, she's there just as the eye candy at some points. She's there to wear skimpy clothes and be Arnie's girlfriend. And it's interesting that most of the, most of the lines in the film that are about Arnie to try and move his story along, to move Conan's story along, come through her, because he has very little to say in this film. Every everything he says is basically a one liner, um, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's one of those films that I probably I probably would have expected it to be a bit better, um, but everything about it was just wrong. I just was very disappointed, and I know that you've not seen it before, James. Jerry is a big fan of it. He said it's the manliest film ever made, which is probably true. <laughs> I mean, it, it is all just about the big, muscly, ripped men and how they fight each other with swords and batter each other, and... Yeah, <laughs> but... Have you seen it, Steve, at all? No. Conan the Barbarian? No. 
Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. It's probably one of those that you should just forget about, actually. If you do love Arnie still, if you've still got that nostalgia towards him and all the films he made in the 80s from Terminator onwards, just just skip. Is this Terminator before film. Terminator? Because uh, 82 is before Terminator. Yeah, this is his first four. kind of big film role. It's his oh, big, no. yeah, breakthrough, yeah. He was in other little films. I know he did the um, Hercules in New York in like the was that in the end of the seven end of the sixties or end of the sixties. They call very yeah. early seventies. I think it might be seventy one or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, he'd he'd been around. He for had a while, some and he was parts more... in films as well. Uh, yeah. Been but they were th- in his autobiography, which is really interesting. Have you read that now? I'm halfway through it at the moment. Halfway I'm, through. I'm still not up to Conan bit actually. He's he's kind no. of starting along his acting career, so I'm probably not even halfway. It's on a Kindle. I can't tell how far through <laughs> it was I am on a Kindle. That's no. quite disconcerting. No, but I mean, it, it, he wasn't a he wasn't a major star, but he was still pretty well known before he did Conan. Not just for the films, obviously, because of his you know um, bodybuilding stuff. Six but, times um, Mr. Universe, yes, exactly. Yeah, so he was you know the draw to the film was to have him in, in it as Conan, and it is pretty spot on casting, I suppose, for the for what they get him to do and the way he looks and everything is is perfect as this this you know barbarian guy who goes around trying to find a snake cult and slay the people who killed his parents, you know. That's, he's pretty spot-on casting for that. But, um, yeah, as a film, it's just terrible. The story's terrible. The acting in it from everybody is terrible. It's just terrible. There we go. There we go. (laughs) Conan the Barbarian. Terrible. Terrible. Uh, We wait for Jerry's repost next week. (laughs) as he's sitting there listening to this podcast, fuming. (laughs) Uh, I am going to talk about not a film. Last week, I said, I claimed, I'd watch five films for this week's podcast. I've watched two. Uh, I'd like to think that if we were recording on Tuesday, like usual, not Sunday, I would have watched five. Okay, Um, we'll we'll, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt, Steve. But there we go. (laughs) I did watch two. They are both new releases. But I will talk about a TV show I've been watching. Not many people have probably heard about this one. Uh, it's from AMC. It's called Breaking Bad. <laughs> Tell us more, uh, Steve. Yeah, what's I'm Breaking new to Bad? it. Um, and I don't know how many other people will have seen it. I think it's just coming to a close now. Um, you know, the last few episodes are, are coming out at the moment. Um, it stars uh, Flavor of the Month, Brian Cranston, as Walter White, a science teacher who gets cancer um, decides to start cooking crystal meth to make a lot of money for his family for when he passes away um, so yes have we heard of it <laughs> yes yeah although I've still only, serious. I've only seen the first are, are two you episodes. both are you both fans of the show I thought it was very good I wanted to see more of it but when um, it got messed around with the scheduling because um it was on Fox, then I think 5 USA bought the rights to it and showed it one episode a night at midnight over a couple of weeks for the second series. So I missed it all, which I was good to debate. But the first series I thought was very good. I've, I've watched, I'm probably about a third, halfway through season three. Yeah. Um, I like the way with AMC they've done this with The Walking Dead. The, the first series is sort of six or seven episodes long. Well, and that, that way you kind of... You can kind of see if you're going to like a program before committing to watching a whole, I mean, fifteen, twenty episode season. 
Yeah, I think the first series got hit by the writer's strike. I think that's yeah. what happened with the first series, so they had to cut it short. Um, um, but anyway, it is it is good. Um, I know a lot of people are enthralled with it and uh, you know think it's the best TV program ever. I don't. Um, it doesn't engage me the same way maybe Sopranos did, Band of Brothers, um, Lost, although Lost ended in the stupidest fashion ever. The f- ever until, until the last episode, I wanted to watch the next episode of Lost straight away. Even when there's a w- week's gap, I couldn't wait. I'm not the same with, you know, Dexter was another one until I stopped watching that during season five. The first four series, I wanted to watch the next episode mm. straight away. Breaking Bad, it's not so much the same. It's not gripped me as much. I can watch, like, two, and then I can quite happily leave it for a couple of days and come back to it. Um, you know, Brian Cranston's very good in it, as Walter White. Um, the acting is generally pretty good. You know, the performances are pretty good, but it's just not, it's not gripping me in the same way that other TV shows have. I don't know if that's just me because everyone else seems to rave about it. That's quite interesting, actually. Mm. Yeah, because I, I, I have heard obviously hugely great things about it. I watched the first two episodes and they did draw me in, but I was watching them with my wife, and we're both at an age now. I'm, I'm not quite there, not age-wise, but <laughs> um, we've had, a, you know, I, I'm a father now, and sometimes severe outbursts of violence and peril and stuff like that can make you feel a bit little do you know what? it does change you uh, and I still want to watch but Kate didn't want to watch any more of it with me she watched the first two episodes and thought she can see this is good but she also can see that it's going to be quite upsetting as well so um, I've not got brown to kind of carrying on with it on my, under my own steam which I'm going to at some point but uh, yeah it's and I've, what I have heard is people have said that the, it's one failing is that it doesn't really have any kind of really fleshed out female characters in it. Unlike, say, The Sopranos, which for me is still the pinnacle, probably, of dramatic television. Um, certainly US television. Uh, I'd say The Sopranos is the, the best thing that I've ever seen on television. Well, for me, I'm very clichéd. It's The Wire, I'm afraid. Uh, there's, there's no series John, I'm going to give another go-to. I am going to give another go-to The Wire. See, The, the Wire is another one that I like, but it's not me, it doesn't make me want to go, right, I want to watch the next one. I'm going to watch five or six in a row, so I want to watch the next one straight away. I, I think oh. that's different from quality, though, because there's a few programs... Because yeah. 24, for example, I always wanted to watch the next episode straight away because the kind of way it's structured... Uh, Sopranos was one that I never thought right I need to watch the next one again but once I'd sat there and digested the whole thing I was like well that's that along with the West Wing is the best piece of television I've ever seen Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily a sign of quality more a sign of kind of addiction yeah Hmm. um, but you you are still watching it and you're still yeah I'm still watching it and I still want to know what happens I'm still enjoying it I mean Brian Cranston's very good I'm I don't know if you can say playing against type because everything he seems to be in at the moment <laughs> seems to be a bit different. But certainly, the only thing I'd seen him in massively before, you know, cause he had little cameo roles in a lot of films, but I've not seen him as a main character in anything other than Malcolm in the Middle. And he's playing completely against type to what he did in that. Um, but he was brilliant in that as well. 
he was quite a comic actor before he started taking a lot of these more dramatic roles because he was also uh, a recurring character on Seinfeld uh, kind of quite early on as well. Yes, he was. Uh, he was the, dentist, the dentist, wasn't he? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think he, he had a background in comedy and it's Breaking Bad which has... Breaking Bad is certainly the thing that has led to all these current film roles that he's been getting and being, as Steve said, flavour of the month. Nice backhanded comment there. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's interesting to hear, Steve, from someone who's watching it, but not completely won over by it yet. No, it's, it's definitely definitely good. Um, whether it's great or not, in my opinion, not yet, but I've still got probably half of the show left. I've watch, heard so. that season four is incredible. Like, it, season four seems to be the one that people told me, oh my God, this show has just stepped up a gear. So maybe mm. when we next speak to you about it, you'll be telling us that you were wrong and it is yeah. one of the greatest TV series of all time. Season four seems to be the key for most shows. Yeah. Dexter was the same. Yeah, uh, the Dexter should have ended on season, season four. four. Yeah, that's right. But The Wire as well, a lot of people say season four is their favourite season. Oh, okay. mm. season. Um yeah, it seems to be uh, the magic number. Yeah, Lost went downhill after season four, yeah, dramatically. As did season, yeah. season four wasn't the best for Lost. It just went yeah. stupid after we've, that. We've so much so that we have. I, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure X Files went a bit rubbish after season four as well. Because with Lost, I started watching the first series again, and I watched the whole first series, and I was really enjoying it. I thought, this is great. I love this. And I thought, yeah, but I can't watch another five series now no, it ends. It's just going to make me angry <laughs> with, with these people involved. Yeah. want to write letters to them and lace them with anthrax or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'll edit that out when I... Yeah, we'll, we won't leave that in. <laughs> no, leave it in. I want them to know how much I don't dislike them and their work. We'll they won't learn. to help us out on our next uh, podcast, yeah. I think, to defend us a bit. Unless, the unless views we make of Steve are not necessarily <laughs> the views of the Film Critics podcast. Unless we make threats to these people, they won't know what they've got to cut out. Dear God! Oh my God! I can only dread to think what you're going to stick in George Lucas's letter. That's all. Feces. <laughs> not not as uh, deadly as anthrax, but probably more insulting. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, up next is James live at the Jadu film premiere. So yes, this is James. I'm at the premiere of Jadu in Leicester. I'm here with my friend and erstwhile pointless colleague, Ralph Lubkowski. Ralph, hello. Hello there, hi. Hello, yes, we're here to watch this film. New British comedy from Amit Gupta, the director and writer of Resistance. It's based uh, on some family stories of his, and it basically features two brothers who fall out many years ago over an Indian cookbook and now run rival restaurants, and only their daughter can bring them back together. Um, Ralph, uh, how are you feeling about this film? I'm really looking forward to it. Um, cheers for the tickets. Um, <laughs> Also, uh, yeah, well, I like curry and I like films, so here I am. It should be really interesting. Nice to see part of the multiculturalism of Leicester put onto the big screen. So, yeah, I think it should be really enjoyable. That's great to hear. Thanks very much. Yeah, no, definitely, this is a film that you don't want to see on an empty stomach. Um, here's a clip. Have you ever 
ever seen such an auspicious star alignment, Kirit? No, boss, I haven't. <laughs> what is it? Nothing. My beloved Pushpa said to me a long time ago, as soon as we choose to live here, educate our children here, their world would be different from ours. Would I prefer an Indian son-in-law? He's a surgeon, studied at Oxford, and he makes my girl happy. Can a father ask for any more than that? Achha. Sonia Gandhi used to be Italian, boss. As long as they have an appetite, God has blessed everyone with the potential to be Indian. Huh? Well said. Huh? Well said, Kirit. Huh? Well said. <laughs> And it was here we were planning to bring you uh, interviews with the stars of the film, Harish Patel, Kovinda Gear, and uh, Mara Karan. Unfortunately, due to scheduling issues and various kind of laborious, far too boring things to go into, um, unable to bring you those. But here are some thoughts uh, and interviews with some of the cast and crew of the film. <laughs> Jardu is a story about two brothers who've fallen out and run rival curry houses. So one of the brothers' daughter decides she's going to try and get them back together. And the way she's going to do this is she is about to get married. And she says to her father that she will only get married the way they want to, with a proper Indian wedding, if he agrees to invite his brother. And she uh, immediately gets bounced by both of them saying they're not going to talk to each other. And so she has to spend the rest of the film working out ways, devising ways, to get them to communicate. It's a brilliant script. It's a fantastic story that I really love and believe in and enjoy bringing to life. And I loved its humour, and I loved its gentleness, and I loved the fact that it was a story about the Asian community that wasn't issue-based. It was just about people. A uh, very sweet, you know, story that was very emotionally truthful. And it's just completely charming and um, nice. It's a good film. It's a good script. It's got a good heart to it. OK, so that is the premiere over. We've just watched the film. Really, really well received from a hometown crowd in Leicester. Ralph, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was charming, actually. A uh, lot of fun, some really good laughs. Um, the two leads were fantastic, uh, absolutely brilliant, especially the uh, the older brother, absolutely hilarious. Yeah, um, yeah, Harris Patel, yeah, no, he, fantastic in this. Yeah, yeah he was excellent, and there was a real genuine, and there was a really nice touching moment at the end with the two brothers reconciling, uh, which was really nicely done as well. So, yeah, all in all, really enjoyed it, thought it was a very a good, heartwarming, feel-good movie. Uh, recommend anybody go and see it, actually, you won't... You won't uh, fail to think anybody wouldn't enjoy that movie. And that's the thing, it doesn't feel like a an Asian film at all. It's just a British comedy. No, not yeah. at all, not at all. A little bit like the sort of heartwarming, yeah, I suppose like the, the Bend It Like Beckham, East is East kind yeah. of sort of flavour to it. Yeah, so um, even if you're not from Leicester, if you are, you'll love it. If you're not, yeah, I think you'll still really enjoy it. Uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, yeah, just a really nice, well-made, feel-good movie. Thank you, Ralph. See, it's nice to get someone who actually knows what they're talking about on this podcast for once. Thank you very much, Ralph. Um, full review of that film and all the rest of the films out this week coming up next. So that was James at the Jardu premiere. Uh, Jardu, for those who didn't get it from what James has just been saying, it's a story of an Indian family centred around the daughter's wedding. Uh, here's a clip. You know, I have to say, 
There's a big part of me thought I'd never meet her dad. I never thought she'd go through with it, mate. What'd you... You said there are lots of couples in the same situation. They are. But what I didn't tell you is that most of the time it doesn't work out. I didn't want to worry you. Well, thanks. Scare me now. Just that generation. Traditional. Straight from the village. Her dad's from Delhi. Talking about Leicester. You ever been? No. Dark place. It's all fine now, though. You're going to visit the dad, and she's had time to cancel, and she hasn't. Here, Gaya swung by Southall to pick these up. In-law's holy presence. Enough sugar in these bad boys to stop a raging bull or enraged father-in-law. Not that he'll be enraged. It's just Indian dads, you never know. I'm terrified of our father-in-law. And I'm Indian. And loaded. So, we've all seen Jardu then, or at least the three of us here. I'm not sure if Jerry has to get around to see it, but he's not here, so it doesn't matter. Um, did we like the film, or was it much Jardu about nothing? Oh, how long have you been waiting to use that? <laughs> yeah. only, only a couple of hours, actually. Oh, okay. Do you know what? It, it, and it's a shame that, um, that that doesn't ring true for me, because it's such a great pun, uh, and, and bravo to you there, sir. Uh, but I, I actually enjoyed it. It was, um, for me, it was on the good level of British romantic comedy films that we've seen over the last few years. Yeah, yeah it fair. was. I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if it was a, a comedy. I think it was more along the lines of a kind of British feel-good movie, mm. in the same kind of way Cemetery Junction was. Yeah, which I, I, I can which, see which, that. Which, which I enjoyed as well, and which people probably thought was going to be a comedy, given the team behind it. But it wasn't a comedy; it was a, a feel-good film with funny bits in it. There was more of a there was actually a, a kind of spirit of Mike Lee there, in a sense. You know, about ordinary British people with some funny things to say. But at, at its heart, it is uh, a kind of almost a working class, oh, a class drama. Um, with some funny elements, yeah. No, I think I think you're right. It's not it's not pure rom com style, no. uh, and it's not. And I think mainly because it's not about the romance at the centre of it. The romance at the centre mm. of it drives the plot, but it's, but it's not about family. Yeah, it's not a rom romance rom com, is it? Because it's it's the the romantic part of it is just a device to put the girl in this situation. Yeah. It's not really it and, drives the whole story. Yeah, unlike most romantic comedies, the course of true love doth run smoothly here, in the sense that, actually, the romance side of it is pretty standard. It's just yeah, two people she, in she says She says yes, the dad likes him, yeah. everything's fine. And, yeah, so the, the key is around um, feuding families, family secrets... So yeah, yeah, actually that that whole Mike Lee thing, which came to me literally just then, kind of yeah, <laughs> comes along there. That that whole secrets and lies type thing. It is about secrets in family past, but it's not as dark as a Mike Lee film. There's no points where you feel suicidal. Um, it it's generally actually just a really kind of nice, easy film about family, about loyalty, and about cooking as well. That's some real it does make, does make you want a curry, doesn't it? Oh, oh, God. I actually just felt so hungry watching that film. I watched it quite late at night, and I just thought, you know what, it's like 11 o'clock at night, but I could really just 
go for an Indian right now. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, the, and clearly they've taken great pains to present that food uh, in that way. And I was uh, the the listening to the director. Um, who spoke about the fact that they filmed the food in such a way that they didn't want to make it glossy. They didn't want to make it look too M&S food, uh, essentially. Mm. Mm. They wanted to make it look how you'd see it prepared and served in a restaurant or in a British-Asian home, you know, and that's that's what you get. And and that's why it looks even more tempting, you know, the whole time mm. it is... And there does seem to be every other scene someone just preparing food randomly. Um, you know, apart from the scenes work in the restaurant, but there's all the have, other scenes as well. Yeah. You'd have loved to have worked on that film because there'd just be so much oh. hurry knocking about for the cast and the crew to eat. Yeah. You'd be twice I, the size, though, wouldn't you, by the time it finished? Oh, yeah. goodness me, yeah, no. Um, uh, and, and for me personally as well, seeing, seeing my city up on a big screen... It's ridiculous. It, it's really, you know, it, it was. It's filmed in uh, Leicester's Golden Mile. Um, the director, um, whose name? Do you know? I'm so unprofessional here. Um, Amit Gupta, uh, yeah. who directed and wrote it. His mum had an Indian restaurant in Leicester up until the when they closed shooting on this film. So she was still running it while they were shooting this film. Apparently, they used to spend lots of time there. As you would, kind of thing. Um, so he's from Leicester. The uh, cinematographer uh, is uh, has been Oscar nominated, but is also from Leicester as well. Um, it seems like a real homecoming, which was nice, and you got that feel of community around around the whole film. And it it was a film with nice people trying to achieve something, and I like that. I, I like that now and again, especially of a British film. It and that's the thing. It felt like a British film, which I think was a really, really strong element of it. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the, the best things about it, actually, is despite having like a large Asian, British-Asian cast as well, um, they never try to make it like a racial-type film. You know, some, some things... It's just such an easy avenue for some films with a lot of like uh, minority cast members to try and make it part of the story about, you know... Um, people's prejudices towards them or their prejudice towards other people and stuff. I'm really happy that they don't... I mean, it's not It's not a major avenue that they explore and it's nice to see them treating them just <laughs> as people rather than these characters to get across a point sort of thing, if you know what I mean. I, no, that, and that's exactly how it came across to me was yeah. um, very early on there's a couple of kind of jokes um, where there is there's a small bit of culture clash where mm. the main... Uh, the main female character in it, the daughter, uh, yeah. Shalani, played by Hamara Karan, she is getting engaged to Tom uh, Mark, played by Tom Wisen, who is a very middle-class English white male. And you get that small bit of culture clash where his Asian friend tells him how to eat Indian food and, yeah. you know, and that kind of thing. And then you get a bit of jokey culture clash type things there. And then from then on, it's just like, right, OK, we're done with that now. Let's move on. This is just... This is just a film about family. It happens to be yeah. about Asian people. Um, it happens to be set in Leicester. And one thing that did make me laugh is there's this line where uh, Mark, who is uh, the love interest, the male love interest, um, he has to go and he says, "Right, I'm going to get on a train and I'm going to go to Leicester 
As if he is actually going to Calcutta or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, and I, Dad just, oh my God, he's going to go to Leicester. That's, whoa. <laughs> um, yeah. That made me laugh quite a lot, actually. Um, but the, yeah, like you say, the rest of the film is, it just says, this is, this is part of British culture. In the same way, earlier in this episode, we were talking about gangsters and middle class romantic comedies and stuff like that. This is also just as British, yeah. This is, uh, and, and it, like you say, it just says this is a story about two brothers. And the fact is, yeah. it's about it's about cooking, it's about family, um, and it is about curry. Yeah, it's hugely exactly. about curry, and it does come from that culture. But yeah, it doesn't make a thing of that culture, and it is. That's right. It hasn't got a chip on its shoulder or anything. It's just precisely is, my point. Yeah. Yeah. This this is just people. This is people who live in Britain. This is their story. This is one of their stories, and I exactly. think that's really I mean, it, quite refreshing. You could you could have substituted the minority for any other minority. You yeah, know? there could have been West Indian, uh, Chinese, or you know Australian. Anything. Exactly. Really. It could have been and Cockneys it, running pie shops in London. Precisely. Kind of thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, but you know, that's not to take anything away from the the culture that they're shown, hmm. and it's, they make it out to be very much like. Um, you know, this is how this family works, and the part of that is to do with their culture of, you know, they're very proud about, you know, about where they've come from and mm-hmm. their their background and stuff. But you're right; it doesn't it doesn't have a chip on its shoulder at all. Never once tries to play a card with, ah, uh, yeah, but part part of this is people white people don't understand them <laughs> kind of thing. It's it's very much um th- these are just just humans, and yeah. this is a story about a family and. And what happens to yeah. them? And, and I will say, I think the, the two stars of the film are the, the two brothers, Corvinda Gear and Harish Patel, who play these kind of feuding brothers who have, due to a deep, dark family secret that obviously isn't revealed until the third act, um, ended up with two halves of their mother's cookbook. One of them is fantastically <laughs> fantastic with starters, one of, which I thought was a really nice plot device, actually. Yeah. One of them's brilliant with starters, one of them's fantastic with main courses, and they can't cook the other ones. Um, and there's a legitimate reason for it. It's not just like a gimmick to, no. to have them separate. It, yeah, it's, exactly. it's quite quite sweet and well-worked into the, the script. I yeah, quite like that. really nice. Enough. And two, two experienced actors that we've probably seen in a lot of things, but never seen massively star. Obviously, Colvin de Gear was in Goodness... Uh, was one of the, mm. the team in Goodness Gracious Me. Uh, he was also in Bendit Like Beckham. Uh, Harish Patel was in Run, Fat Boy, Run, and a number of other things as well. Um, but they've never really had the chance to star on a big screen. And I thought they were both absolutely brilliant. They were very funny. Um, but they played the emotional scenes really, really well as well. Yeah, it was proper mm. acting on display, which... Yeah. I feel bad because I thought, well, it's a small, low-budget British film, um, you know, starring TV actors. Um, it's going to feel like an extended TV programme. But the acting belies the budget for me, and I thought there were some really nice performances in there. Yeah, particularly, I did quite like Harish Patel's performance. I yeah. thought he was um, was brilliant. And... Colvinder as well was was great, and they both have that same. They can play the comedy side of it. They can play that emotional side that you've talked about. Um, so they really sort of added a, a bit of class to the to the script, really. Mm. And um, yeah, but uh, Amara Karen, is yeah. that how you pronounce her name? Karen. She was really good as well. Yeah, I thought she was she was fantastic. She was in uh, a fantastic fear of everything, which, which I've uh, not Simon. seen yet. 
Yeah, she she, she didn't have a huge part mm. in that, but she was she was okay. She, you know, she was recognisable as that's the same actress from oh, that, okay. that thing. But she was, um, yeah, I thought she was really good in this. She, she was, was also fun. in the uh, Darjeeling Express and an episode of Doctor Who as well. So that that was quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I mean, the, the only thing I've seen her in is uh, Fantastic Four mm. of Everything, but she she was um, she's quite funny. I think. Yeah. She she sort of caught, you know through the whole thing. She's the one who sort of links it all together, and she's you know quite easy to watch, and she makes you laugh and stuff. Yeah, and, so. she's, and she's got to play it quite straight, and she's got quite a difficult role, like you say, because she's a lot of it. She's got to set up the two yeah. brothers. Um, so she's the constant keeping this film. She's the heart of this film in that sense, um, and quite often a little bit the uh, the audience's proxy into this film as well. So. She does a really good job. Yeah, no, and, and it was nicely shot. It wasn't too visually spectacular or dazzling. Some people might say that's because Leicester isn't. Uh, those people <laughs> wrong. Uh, Leicester's a beautiful city. Um, you know, some areas of it were a little bit functional. Uh, you know, a few of the minor minor performances a little bit functional, and you could tell it was filmed on a budget. But I think that, like I say, I think the charm of the cast kind of really helped. Um, and it yeah. and it felt like it came from the community that it was portraying as well. Uh, you you can't you can't really buy that. That's all right. But you know it, they I think they, they make quite good use of the the actors that they employ anyway. Even in just small roles, people like um, Paul Chaudry pops up, and it's quite nice to just see comedians who you know and you know popping up in in films like this and actually being quite funny yeah. and Maddie Jaffrey wow you know yeah. a nice coup to get Maddie Jaffrey in not just for her cooking expertise but for her acting as well so that's that's quite nice I also noticed one of our local MPs Keith Vaz managed to inch his way into the film so he's wasn't, wasn't a publicity the whole, whore wasn't the whole judging panel for that thing made up of kind of famous well there was um, there was uh, Hardeep Singh Kohli kind of hosting that bit then Madder Jeffrey, yeah. I recognised Keith Vaz immediately. Keith Vaz is an MP who recently went to a college nearby me to dance Gangnam style um, to promote Leicester's bid to become the uh, cultural capital of the United Kingdom. Um, this is a man who will do anything for a bit of publicity. Mm. <laughs> I didn't recognise the other member of the judging panel, though, I'll be honest. But yeah, um, it's... And, and, what I will say, and this kind of goes against what we've been talking about, about it just being a British film. It's out in cinemas on Friday, um, the 6th of September, but it only seems to be playing in cities with quite a large Asian population. If you go onto the, the film's website, you'll see that you can request your local cinema to play it, but... I know all four of the big cinemas in Leicester are playing it, for example. It's also playing in Wolverhampton and places like that. Um, but it's not on a nationwide release. And I, I think that's a shame because I do... Well, it's t I suppose it's two sides of a coin. It will probably attract a lot of people from the British Asian community to come and see it because it's a film about their culture. But at the same time, that I think there is a danger of it only attracting that audience and it not attracting mm. kind of the, the mainstream British cinema audience, especially if it's not getting the chance to play in the cinemas in the first place. Yeah. But it's no, quite, I, mean, it, I mean, overall, it's quite a sweet little comedy anyway. I think even 
anybody can who who likes that sort of film. I know we've we've tried to sort of distance it a little bit from those Richard Curtis films, but I think people who like those sort of films will probably like this as well. To be honest, yeah. Excellent. Uh, next up, a completely different kind of film, Pain and Gain, starring Mark Wahlberg and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It is completely the diametrical opposite of Jardou, isn't it? It's, yeah, utterly, completely, and about as opposite as you can get from any film. A Michael Bay uh, film about bodybuilders in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yes. uh... Here is a clip. Eagle is on the move. Coming to us. Prepare to neutralize the target. Come on, come on, come on. He's coming. He's coming. Come on, come on, come on. Hurry up, hurry up. Go, 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 go. Get him, get him, get him. What the hell? Get him, Rick. Where is he? He was right here. Where'd he go? You see him? Where the hell is he? There he is! You got the wrong BMW? It's two exact BMWs. I told you to check the license plate. It was an honest mistake. So we thought it was the same car. It looked exactly the same. I can deal with his impotence. I cannot deal with your incompetence. So that was a clip of Pain and Gain. I've not seen it, but Owen and James have. So tell us all about it. Yeah, um... Yeah, Pain and Gain. Do you know what? It's weird. This is the first time I've been excited about a Michael Bay film in forever. Um, and basically, I think since I knew who Michael Bay was, because I think when Armageddon came out, I was just quite excited about a film about an asteroid hitting the Earth with Bruce Willis in it. Uh, I didn't really understand who. I think even back, I wasn't entirely like, oh, Michael Bay kind of thing. So since then, uh, since, I'd say since back, Bad Boys 2, which wasn't great, I've, I've just not... And, you know, we're clearly not alone here. Pretty much everyone has turned away from Michael Bay, apart from teenage boys and studio executives who still keep giving him hundreds of millions of dollars to make films. I suppose as long as he's making money. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but this film, because of the original story it's based on, which uh, I've read, which is just a fascinating true-life story, um, and the fact that it had Dwayne The Rock Johnson in it, I thought, I'm quite excited about this film. And also, it's quite low budget for a Michael Bay film. You're talking, I think, mm. less than a $40 million budget, which is pretty low for for Bay. And it it does look quite expensive, actually. He's, he's done well with his money here. Um, well, Owen, what did you think first? Okay, what, what I thought. Um, I'll give an overall opinion. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite fun, I think. Yeah. It, it's not... <laughs> it's not as good as a lot of people have been saying, and it's not as bad as the people who are saying the opposite thing to them have been saying. I think it's somewhere in the middle as in terms of it being um, a better-than-expected film, but not quite a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best things about it are the performances. Yeah, So I definitely. thought Mark Wahlberg was good as Daniel Lugo. Um, the really sort of committed, uh, ambitious, um, overly self-opinionated kind yeah, of character his, was good. His, I, yeah, the the fact that how the extremes he takes the American dream to. Yeah. You know? Yes. And you can. And the great thing about Wahlberg is you can believe it. You can follow. You know, 
if mm. you took it objectively, go, no, that's ridiculous. But the way he portrays it on screen, you can see that for him, this is just the logical extension of the American dream. That's it, right. This makes perfect sense to him. And it's interesting that in, in a lot of his other films recently, he's been playing the sort of comedic character. And I think in this one, he was almost the straight man. And yeah. everyone else was the... They added the humour to it, and he was the one who... Obviously, he... I mean, he was quite funny in it anyway, mm. which was uncomfortably funny at times because... Yeah. It's so awkward to, every so often you have to just go, oh, hang on a minute, this is real. This is what they were doing. That's it. And the film reminds you of that at times as well. Yeah. Even though it has taken a few liberties with the original story. I'm sure it did. Um, <laughs> for example, the uh, character that uh, Dwayne Johnson plays is actually a composite of about three different characters. Um, right. But um, Mark, Mark Wahlberg's character, Daniel Lugo, is you know, a true character, as is the character played by Anthony Mackie as well, his kind of uh, protege. Um, yeah. yeah, they they were two genuine characters in it. But yeah, you're exactly right. He's um, yeah. For me, it's one of Wahlberg's best performances because it is genuinely quite out there at times, and I do think it's funny. And there's this yeah. Anyone who knows anything about his film sees that basically these, these bodybuilders hatch a plan to uh, take away everything that a local shady potentially businessman owns and they kidnap him get him to sign over everything to them you know uh, and mm. then it's the consequences of that basically and the scenes where um daniel lugo has kind of made it for a bit uh, some of the funniest ones for me when he's trying to fit into the local neighborhood as the the nouveau rich um <laughs> neighbor that there to me is where he actually really, really excels. That you know that that man completely out of place there, but really yeah, struggling I, to fit in. I found that the film um, sort of started to wane a little bit at that point, mm. but Wahlberg was still the sort of constant yeah. throughout there. Um, although, again, it was mainly supported by the characters, yeah. The Rock uh, or Dwayne Johnson, yeah. whatever his yeah. title. He's, he'll it's always be The Rock to me. He's always going to be yeah. The Rock to us. Yeah, but. Um, he was really, I mean, his sort of naive Christian yeah. um, character, you know, ex-con character, he's, he's very funny, yeah. intentionally funny, I think, at times. And also because, you know, the way he's played is actually is quite stupid. Yeah. You know? uh, um, yeah, he, yeah um, it, again, it's my favourite Dwayne Johnson performance for a long time in terms it's of a, its range and being against type. Yeah, that's right. Because he, he, you know, it, it's the first film where he's playing um, a bad guy trying to be a good guy. Yeah. I think there's, there's very few of those. Sometimes he's the villain, and sometimes he's the hero. Yeah. So it's an interesting range that he he has to play here. Although you know, st- you do get stuff like um, um, the, the the film he was in the uh, last year with. Um, I'm just going to look this up because <laughs> he he does play. The, it, that sort of character sometimes, but never quite in the same sort of amusing way. I no, think. he he was very funny, and yeah, he was very dumb. Um, yeah, and the, but you know, uh, faster was the film. Oh, right. okay, yeah. yeah. But this year, I've sort of been a bit disappointed with him. I thought he was good in GI Joe, but I didn't really like him much in Fast and Furious or in Snitch. Snitch, I was really disappointed with actually. Okay. I thought that was his chance to show himself as a. A proper, with you know, yeah. with, with um, quotation marks, proper actor, and I was a little bit let down by that. Mm. Well, um, yeah, it's it's great to see him playing, well, playing the Rock, I suppose. Yeah. But as a as sort of. But yeah, yeah, a kind of a high octane version, and also <laughs> yeah. him kind of going against a lot of 
his fan, you know, a lot of his original, well, not his original fans, they'll easily be able to go and see this film. But you know, the fact that he's been back doing the wrestling in the last year or so, and a lot of those fans mm. won't, you know, their parents wouldn't want to see this performance of The Rock as a kind of no, addicted, weird Christian psycho. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is, oh, also was, um, I think Ed Harris is great in this as well mm. but he is remarkably turning into um, Peter Weller I, I just keep seeing him things and thinking he's Peter Weller now um, that's just me probably <laughs> um, but what we do have to say is this film is still hugely misogynistic um, oh yeah hugely style over substance ridiculous <laughs> camera angle you know I think where this film works, it's kind of in spite of Michael Bay rather than because of Michael Bay. I think it's because of an incredible true story, which has still been slightly butchered for this film, but still an incredible true story and some brilliant performances, and they're the key things of this film, mm-hmm. uh, and they're the things that I enjoyed. The rest of it, I did, it did feel like quite immoral filmmaking. That kind of, I, It almost felt like I'd gone into a... A Soho adult <laughs> cinema. Or I felt ashamed to be in there enjoying it. I felt like I wanted to be able to leave out the back door and put on a pair of dark glasses because I think it's a film that if you go in and you leave your conscience at the door, you'll yeah. have some fun with it. But if at any point you start thinking, hang on, um, these guys tortured someone like, and they were pretty nasty about it in the film it's even worse in real life but in the film it's pretty nasty but you're still kind of meant to kind of root for them in a lovable loser time it's strange that's that's a really difficult dynamic for me Um, and the other thing is the women characters are in it are so so paper thin and there's just so many gyrating Backsides with thongs on, just for no reason throughout the film. You say, "Oh, this is like Michael Bay hasn't really changed at all, has he?" <laughs> no. And I thought maybe this was him going. Do you know what? I'm going to try and make an indie, but no, he's just he's made this film before he makes the next Transformers, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, part of me thinks that the, the misogyny in this one was um, him realising it's misogynistic and, and pulling it in there to reflect the rest of what's going on in the story, I think. Possibly. A little bit. But at the same time, there are an awful lot of, like you said, gyrating women, and it's a bit off-putting, I suppose, yeah. and, um, in the sense that you, you you are kind of reminded that it is a Michael Bay film every yeah. so often. Um, also, I really don't want us to overlook uh, Anthony Mackie, who thought no. was great, and he's, it's a shame he's not the one that anybody's talking about when, when the when this film's been advertised, it's Mark Wahlberg film, it's the Dwayne Johnson film, um, it's the Michael Bay film, but mm. he's one of the, the three central characters to this. And it doesn't and work without him, no. You're, it does, you're does not up. work without him, no. And he, he he plays his role really well. I think of the three, um, Wahlberg is, is the best sort of character in mm. it, um, but Anthony Mackie, I thought, gave one of the better performances. Yeah. It's sort of, that sort of straight character. Dwayne Johnson is obviously the most entertaining character, yes. if you like. Yeah. Okay, and the final new release we are talking about this week, one that both me and James have seen, but I don't believe Owen has seen it. It is the horror. You're next. Here's a quick clip. I 
I just want you all to know how much it means to us that you're all here. Thanks to mom and dad. Beautiful. Just a perfect day. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy food and help us to do our part with kind words and loving deeds. Amen. Amen. But everything starts going wrong when some masked killers start picking them off one by one. Um, yeah, so Owen, you didn't see this one. I didn't. I was a bit disappointed. Was a bit... Street, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I was... thought he would have. <laughs> I, would, I would have loved to have gone and seen it, but it's not showing at my cinema, um, oh. which is annoying. It's but it's been around for a long time. This film, I think twenty. 2011 or 2012 it, 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 it was, it was made in 2011 yeah. Uh, yeah but it's just shown um, the week bef- weekend before it was shown at Fright Fest um, yes. and we had uh, one of our listeners uh, Mike Shawcross uh, said he really really enjoyed it but he did think potentially that was because he was in a Fright Fest audience that was really enjoying it and I think that does yeah. always help is if you're in a if you're in an audience which is predisposed to wanting to like that mm-hmm. film and they do that always makes that always feels good doesn't it um it's one of the it's one of a few kind of home invasion horrors which we've had this year the, the biggest one uh was the purge which i never actually got around to seeing in the end with uh ethan hawk and leah Headey. Uh, this I, I do you know what i i like this more than i expected i would do I was. I f- I think it's two thirds a good horror film, let down by a last third. Yeah, and we've mentioned on ba- that. Basically, without spoiling, I don't know how much you can say about spoiling it. Basically, Just say the once last you find, kind of runs mm, out of steam. I think that's that's fair enough. I, f- I, f- I think you can kind of say once you find out the killer's motive. Yeah. The film goes downhill. Because you're always going to find out the killer's motive yeah. somehow in and, a horror and film. That is, and again, it's not necessarily a problem with this film. We've been mentioned. We spoke, I think it was on last week's podcast about modern horror films and kind of running out of steam and things like that. The fact is very difficult because the most fun part of a horror film is when you don't know what's going on. Is that maybe, maybe they should just do a horror film where the bad guy wins? And he's just a fucking nutter. <laughs> there is no reason for what he's doing. It's not revenge. He's not a ghost. He's not an alien. He's just fucking nuts. Sort of like the Friday 13th films. I mean, the, yeah. the, the impression I got from the trailer from Your Next was it could be a, the new big franchise. You know, Saw sort of finished now and there's not really anything about that's new. That, well, I suppose Insidious has got a sequel out next week. But, you know, there's, there's films that... We haven't really got a slasher sort of 
major franchise brewing at the minute. And I thought from the trailer, your next looks like it could be one of those where the next film could just be a different family, or the next film after that could mm. be another yeah, family did, or another location. It didn't do anything particularly new with the slasher horror genre, but okay. like like I've said recently, I've been trying to find a film this like a horror film, scary film that's going to make it hard for me to go to sleep. And mm. I think that this would have done had it not ended the way it did. Had the had the killer's motive not been what it was. Yeah, I think that's because I, I think, think you know, the, the, the first two thirds of the film, I was thinking, yeah, shit, it's going to make it hard mm. to sleep tonight. This is pretty mental yeah <laughs> and and i think that's because the randomness of violence is the the most scary thing that we will yeah. ever face in you know but the, but the kind of stuff like we we spoke about earlier the music in the trailer which is a bit disappointed it wasn't in the actual film but you know some of the music used when when the violence was happening it was just kind of such like kind of nice not so much upbeat but kind of calm kind of mm. pop music and it was just like Right, it, you know, against the contrast of horrible violence. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what just to say, what this film does is it. On one hand, it has got all your standard horror tropes. You've got a strong uh, female survivor in this kind of like Halloween. You know, basically going all the way back to Halloween, but you know, then Scream had. It. You've got that kind of Sydney Prescott style uh, female lead in this film. Uh, you've got a lot of great violent scenes, but again, it's not it's not anything particularly new. One thing it did, which I haven't really seen from too many films, is have this super rich middle class fam- American middle class family, and it really played up a lot of. It, there was a lot of class issues in this film, which I wouldn't have expected going in, and they are such a you know they are unlikable, but on purpose. Um, so you are thinking, actually, you know, kind of you, a little bit of you is wanting to think, actually, some, maybe they do deserve to get this a bit. Uh, because the dad in it, for you know, right at the beginning, it's actually he's recently retired from a defence contractor and stuff like that. So you are actually thinking, maybe these are, maybe these are deserving victims. And not for a completely horrible thing like this, but you're thinking, actually, I've got a little bit less sympathy for these. So that was quite different and interesting. The other thing I would say, and... The script plays into that a little bit as well. And the script script is very funny at times, but not mm, there's, there's packed full of one jokes. Of the... No, it's about people's it... reactions to this kind of violence. It's about some people's really very middle class, um, not having ever got their hands dirty reactions to having to fight for their lives all of a sudden. There's, there's there is one character in particular that had was quite funny, which was the one of the brothers Blake, who was just. He reminded me of the the dick in Cloverland, uh, Cloverfield, who just kept saying like the most inappropriate things at the wrong time. There was like there was the one time where they were discussing who was going to run to the car, and at the time he had an arrow in his back. He said, "I'm the fastest, but I've got an arrow in my back." Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he just said to his brother, "He just said to his brother, you 'You're definitely not the fastest. You're too chubby.'" Yeah, and there was a lot of really nice kind of playful dialogue which felt quite realistic felt quite minimalistic it didn't felt it didn't feel too written it felt like it came properly out of the characters mouths which worked um and quite interestingly ty west the horror director plays one of the family guests yeah uh, uh which i thought was really interesting as well plays a filmmaker 
called Tariq. Uh, <laughs> and there's a bit of an, there, there's a great little bit of uh, interplay between that character. Steve was just talking about saying, why doesn't he do commercials? Commercials are his favourite thing. You know, he, he watches TV just for commercials these days and stuff like that. You know, it's some really <laughs> nice little uh, bits of dialogue. There's some pretty gruesome deaths in it. It, on the whole, it worked for me as a low-budget slasher horror. It reminded me a lot of the work of um, John Carpenter. Some of the music was straight out of, you know, again, that real uh, dread kind of chords and sort of 80s synthesizer dread chords are all over the place as well. It was a little bit of a cross between Halloween and Assault on Precinct 13. Um, there's a nice, there's a nice bit of Home Alone-ish. Yeah. Oh, there's a, yeah, there the is some real kind of Home Alone-ish kind of home defence and home invasion mm. traps as well. Which, which makes me kind of want to see like a, a slasher version of Home Alone. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Like, well, like Macaulay Culkin all grown up trying to defend his house, but instead of just kind of making them slip over on marbles, like killing people with traps made like really dangerous. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever look at the plot keywords on IMDb for films? Now and again, I do. Only if I kind of notice it, though. Yeah, your next has got some great ones in it. It's got stabbed in the shoulder. <laughs> Film starts with sex. Stabbed in the back. <laughs> stabbed to death. <laughs> <laughs> but it comes up with some weird ones as well. Yeah. No cell phone signal. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Classic, classic. Yeah, that's yeah. that's one way they've got around. That's one way horror oh, films this... have had to get around the fact that everyone's got a mobile phone these days. Yeah. Is that there's... all these things have to take place when no one's got any signal? There's there's more stabbed ones. There's stabbed in the head. There's stabbed yeah. in the foot. Uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Recognise that. Yeah. Stabbed in the arm. Stabbed in the face. Yeah. There's a lot of stabbing going Basically, on. Basically, every part of the body gets stabbed <laughs> on, on one or two people. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome in places. It's very creepy and. Ugh in places yeah. as well and like Steve says the, the only problem for me with it was that it gets less realistic less believable and kind of runs out of steam in the form of third it, it kind of it, it took it took everything good it was doing as a horror yeah. away at the yeah. end or the, the last the last act yeah so I, I still think those who are fans of the horror genre should definitely see it those not too I'm not a massive fan of the horror genre at the moment but I, I enjoyed it um, it's kind of a 6 out of 10 film for me do you know what was irritating from my point of what view what was that the guy who worked in the cinema come and stood in a row behind us like during the film like halfway through were you scared he was going to stab just, you in the shoulder it was just <laughs> creeping me out yeah. because you couldn't like look around and look at him yeah. but what is this person doing behind me while I'm watching <laughs> you were scared. it you were scared weren't you yeah. a little bit Steve just well, go away yeah. <laughs> I went to see um, Scream 2 when it came out in the cinema on my own and that opens in a cinema where people get killed and I was in a cinema pretty much on my own. That scared the shit out of oh, me. That did. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a decent enough horror film. Uh, it's, it's no The Conjuring, but it's uh, yeah, I'm, I like. It's nice to see a good slasher because I've not seen a good slasher for a while. Mm. Do you think they will uh, continue it as a series? I, I think it... potentially they'll use the name, but part a bit like okay. well, like you say, different family, different things. That. And main reason being that people are more likely to go and see a sequel than a brand new film. The fact is, it, they could make another film. Uh, basically, it would have to be Home Invasion, but make a Home Invasion film, um, and it could be about absolutely anything. It could have literally no link to this film, but they'd call it Your Next Two, and people will go and watch it. That's what I think will happen. You think that's what they yeah. could do? Yeah. All right, that's that's it for our uh, new release reviews. 
one final part of the podcast left to come, which is our recommendations for next week. My recommendation for next week, then, I have gone for television. I have gone for Friday night. Terrible week on TV for film, unless you've got Sky. And we don't recommend films from Sky, because everyone's got it. No, no, uh, we, we believe in quality and class warfare and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> um, so, yes, Friday is the day I have chosen. Uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning on Film 4... Great expectations, I was looking forward to it, but it wasn't all that. <laughs> Is that your recommendation? No, 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 my re- my act- I was just trying to, you know, we've been doing this podcast for over a year oh, and no okay. one's done that joke yet, oh, so... Okay. Oh, I see. <laughs> someone, had, someone had to get it's out of the way. It's not midnight, Steve, I can't go. <laughs> no, yeah. the film I am recommending is also on at 11 o'clock, um, but it is on ITV4, I think. Uh, let me just double check that. So you know what? Before we started this, when you asked if we were ready, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's more four, not ITV four. Sorry, it is the Alfred Hitchcock film Rear Window. Good choice. Eleven, eleven o'clock in the morning start. Don't know. James Stewart is a photographer. He's housebound in a wheelchair. Spots some funny goings on next door and gets all involved in it. Yeah, my favourite Hitchcock has inspired lots of lots of spin-offs and lots of and like all the, all the greatest films have got a Simpsons parody, uh, and yes. this has as well. So there we go. Mm. Uh, James, uh, mine is uh, on, uh, new to Netflix this week. I literally came on yesterday. Although it's not a new film, it's quite an old film, but it's a film I really enjoyed. It's from 1968, it's The Thomas Crown Affair, starring Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway. Uh, Steve McQueen plays Thomas Crown, who is a bored, rich playboy, um, who has a hobby, which is pulling off the perfect crime. Uh, Masterminds of bank robbery, and uh, an insurance investigator, played by Faye Dunaway, sets out to catch him, but ends up falling madly in love with him, because he's Steve McQueen, of course you would. Um, (laughs) Brilliant 60s heist thriller uh, with the same um, the title theme is The Wind Wheels of Your Mind which is a classic 60s song as well so um, that's my choice great film and Owen um, well on Monday uh, there's a DVD of a TV series coming out and uh, I'm going to plug it I've plugged it before um, when we did our TV special but it's Hannibal uh, starring Lawrence Fishburne and it's uh, starring uh, Hugh Dancy and uh, one of our favourite foreign film actors, or world cinema actors, Mads Mikkelsen, who I watched in Valhalla Rising this week. And that was a tough brilliant. watch. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't say anything, but he's, he's still very imposing in that film. Uh, and yeah, very tough, tough watch. But he, he, Hannibal is probably one of the best things that's been on TV for a long time. Um, as you might guess, it's about Hannibal Lecter. And Mads Mikkelsen plays Hannibal, and it is just really one of the most sort of highbrow crime drama horror films, TV series rather, that you, you're likely to see. It's only, I think it's about 13 episodes. Um, yeah, I highly recommend that. Okay, um, that's all for this week. What have we got coming up next week? Uh, next week we have got, I believe, a 
again, when Steve said, are you ready? And I said, <laughs> yes, I am. And I know he always asked me this, and I still forgot, but I've got it in front of me now. Uh, next week, we have got new reviews of uh, About Time, the new Richard Curtis film, and Riddick, the new Vin Diesel film, about mm. that guy you can see in the dark and stuff. Uh, plus, nearly made him homeless, apparently. Yes. Um, and finally, about pencil it in your diaries, people. Uh, we will be inducting Studio Ghibli into the corridor of praise at yeah, our fourth time or fifth time of potentially asking. Let's see, unless something else comes up in the middle. Okay. Um, website is the usual place. We're also on Twitter. Um, join us next week. Thanks to everyone who listened and contributed. The Failed Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com and you can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at at failedcritics. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.